in Ezekiel 5, 5, the prophet already made this statement. Thus says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Now, when I was a child, they would have put a map of the world on our grammar school blackboard. The United States would be in the center. But when God looks at the map of the world, he sees Israel as being in the center of the world. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our series titled, God's Prophetic Schedule, and today is part two of Russia's Rise in Prophecy. We are witnessing our nation and the world seemingly come undone due to the moral free-for-all that we are seeing right before our very eyes. In today's sermon, Pastor Carl reminds us that every single prophecy concerning the first coming was literally and plainly fulfilled, and that's how we should expect the prophecies for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Please join us in Ezekiel 38 as we continue. We're going to see that the battle we'll study this morning involves a handful of nations. The battle that we're going to study later on in this series, the Battle of Armageddon, involves all the nations of the world, not to be confused with the third and final battle described in Revelation 20 that metaphorically is called Gog and Magog. Kind of like today, we we speak, oh, that's an Armageddon-like event. And people use that term all the time. Most of the time, they have no idea what they're speaking of. But God is speaking even of another battle at the end of the thousand years, quite distinct from this. And that too will involve nations across the world, not just the six or seven that we're looking at today. So after the rapture of the church, there's a period of time, seven plus years. And somewhere in that period of time, probably before the Antichrist actually signs this covenant, this battle will take place. And it would seem very logical because as we'll see this morning, it's going to crush and ruin a lot of the Muslim countries of the world that oppose Israel. And it will certainly, with them out of the way, make it very easy for this one world leader to allow for the rebuilding of their temple that has to be in place and fully functional by the middle of the tribulation period when he goes into it and defiles it. But think about what would happen and maybe what would precipitate this battle. The church is raptured. Millions of people are missing. Nurseries across the world are suddenly empty. Can you imagine the panic that will ensue in the hearts of dads and moms? Pregnant women are suddenly non-pregnant. Surgeons who've been operating on a patient, if they're born again, they're suddenly missing. Aircraft, if they're flown by born-again pilots, suddenly crash to the ground. Cars are left without drivers. I mean, the world is in utter chaos, and that would certainly be an ideal environment for a one-world leader to step up. And so the Antichrist is going to make a treaty with Israel, and since the cleanup for this battle takes seven years, as the next chapter will underscore, seems to fit very closely in this time frame. Again, son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Now, we need to pause here and ask and answer an important question. Why does the Bible use all these weird names? 
Well, one of the reasons is because the names of places and cities constantly change. There was once a city called Byzantium, being the capital of the world when the Emperor Constantine was in charge. And he moved the capital from Rome to Byzantium, and he renamed the city uh, Constantinople. Think about the Muslims 1,500 years later. They renamed that place again, and they call it Istanbul, to which it is called today. Or think about even within the former Soviet Union, within Russia, there was once there a city by the name of Petrograd. And then many, many years later, due to the Christian influence, they renamed it St. Petersburg. And then when communism came in, they removed that name and they called it Leningrad after the communist and atheist Lenin. And then in the 1990s, they changed it back to St. Petersburg. And so the challenge is that the renaming of cities and nations has happened throughout time. However, you don't have to worry about that because what doesn't change are ancestors. So if you go back and you discover, well, what ancestors populate a particular geographical region, then you can pinpoint where you are on the map. Here's a slide that might be helpful to you. Remember, we not only go back to Noah, we go back to Mr. and Mrs. Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you look on the far right under Japheth, you will see a man by the name of Magog. Now, when I preached through the book of Genesis, I told you when we came to Genesis 10 that it's a chapter that most will just skip. It seems boring, but I went through every single word of it. And I told you way back then when I preached Genesis 10 in our exposition of Genesis, I think there's 60 sermons I did on that book, that you will find yourself time and time and time again coming back to Genesis 10, the table of nations. So when God looks at the peoples of the world, he doesn't simply look at geographical boundaries. He looks at ethnicities. Now, you might find that a certain ethnicity is within a particular boundary, but there might be three or four ethnicities that are described in the table of nations that fill a particular geographical spot. So you can see in dealing with Magog, we're dealing with one of Japheth's seven sons. The fact that Magog is used in the table of nations allows us to trace the movement after the flood uh, through Noah's descendants. Now Ezekiel is using the table of nations as you work through his great prophecy. He knows Genesis chapter 10 and he uses these names recognizing that his Jewish readers will recognize where these people are from and who specifically they represent. And so if you're unable to find out where these people and places were in Ezekiel's day, you can trace their modern ancestors. You go back, who are the original ancestors? And you find out where they are living today. So Josephus, he is a Jewish historian. He lives in the first century AD, not to mention Hesiod and Philo and Herodotus, all underscore that Magog were the Greeks called Scythians. Now, today, Magog would represent Russia. The Scythians live in what we call Russia, and they also represent the underbody of the former USSR, all the Stan countries, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and so on. So, son of man, set your face toward Gog, and this word translated Gog is not a person like Karl Gog or Fred Gog or Vladimir Gog or Nicholas Gog. 
It's a title. The Hebrew word is sometimes translated high or supreme when it's used in a non-technical way. Uh, It's a title like czar or president or pharaoh. And so in this context, Gog is a person, and he is from, notice, the land of Magog, referring to that land mass that Ezekiel is to preach against. Now, for Ezekiel, Gog is a prince, and Magog is a country. And again, don't confuse it with the Gog and Magog at Revelation 20 that we will come to later, God willing, in this series. Now, notice what he is commanded to prophesy about this particular people and say, this is what the Lord God, notice God is in all caps, Lord Adonai, capital G, capital O, capital D. So if you're not familiar with the different names of God, you might want to read the preface to the New American Standard Bible. Sometimes you'll read capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. And when you see capital G, capital O, capital D, that's Yahweh. And when God pulls two names together, he does for a reason. So he's pulling together Adonai, Yahweh. This is what Adonai, Yahweh says. Behold, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, notice God's not in favor of this Russian coalition. He's against them. Now, let me just say parenthetically, if you're using the 1995 edition of the NASB versus the 2020, it reads a little bit different. And that's because this is one of those words with a dual nuance. And we've seen this often in our study of Scripture. Our kids memorize, study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The NAS might render it, be diligent to show yourself approved. Well, what is it? Is it study or is it be diligent? It's both, but there's not a single English word that will capture the meaning. And so some translations will put emphasis on the exercise you're studying. Others will put emphasis on the kind of study you are doing, a diligent study, because you can study and not be diligent at it. And so here, the words, the chief prince, is actually translating a Hebrew word, rosh. It just is transliterated. The sounds from Hebrew come right into English, R-O-S-H. And so, uh, notice in the 95 edition of the NAS, it says, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So Rosh is in view. The new New American Standard is putting emphasis on the one giving leadership. I think the older one, like other translations, do better combining both. So the prince of Rosh. And so we're going to see that it is the prince of Rosh that is going to lead this whole invasion. By the way, it just happens that Rosh is a variant spelling of the modern word Russia. And they even sound a little bit alike. But don't draw conclusions from that where you find another word like Meshach and someone says it sounds like Moscow, so it must be Moscow. It just happens to be that way, but it's certainly not that way, always. But we know not only linguistically, we know historically that Rosh is indeed Russia. Uh, not only does history record it, but even the Septuagint, 
the Septuagint. Many of you are familiar with that term. Sometimes you're reading your New Testament, you see this Old Testament quotation, you go out into the margin of the NAS, and it says LXX. Why do they put that there? Because that's supposed to be helpful to you. You say, well, help me me to make it helpful. Uh, Well, because sometimes you say, okay, uh, this is from Numbers. And I go back and I read Numbers, and it says the same thing, but it reads a little bit differently. Why does it read a little bit differently? Because they put out in the margin LXX. Why? Because they're quoting the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So most Jews in the first century, they didn't read Hebrew. They read the Greek translation of the Old Testament because after the Babylonian captivity and they were spread and so forth, they lost their ability to speak Hebrew. And so in the Septuagint, Rosh is definitively classified as Russia. And there's unanimous support for that and no one really debates that today. In fact, beyond the historical and linguistic reasons, there's a geographical reason. If you drop down to verse 15, it says you will come, this one called Rosh, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you. Now remember, when the Bible gives directions, north, south, east, and west, it's always in reference to Israel. In Ezekiel 5.5, the prophet already made this statement. Thus says the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, this is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Now when I was a child, they would have put a map of the world on our grammar school blackboard. The United States would be in the center. But when God looks at the map of the world, he sees Israel as being in the center of the world. And so in Scripture, directions north, south, east, and west are in reference to Israel. Now, I took the globe that we have in the counseling office, and I took a string this week, and I ran it from the North Pole to Jerusalem, and right through the center of it is Russia. And it's not by accident. It goes right through precisely Moscow, the capital of Russia. Verse 3. And say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh. And then he adds to other nations, Meshach and Tubal. Now, Meshach is easier to identify because there are 10 times in the Old Testament, including the table of nations where they are mentioned. Again, Meshach has no association with Moscow, Moscow, neither biblically nor historically, nor in terms of its sound. It would be what we would call Southeast Turkey today. That's where the Meshkavites live in Southeast Turkey. Then he mentions Tubal. That's found eight times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And Tubal in the Table of Nations is the brother of Meshach, and he also is in the Southeast portion of Turkey. Now again, it's popular to come up with these bizarre interpretations, but if you do your work, it's very clear as to who these nations are. Meshech and Tubal provide the largest population base today of what we call Turkey. And of course, Turkey is a Muslim country. It's been dominated for hundreds of years by the Muslims. It was once the um, founding nation of what we call the Ottoman Empire. And if you know your modern day history, the current president, 
of Turkey wants to reinvigorate the Ottoman Empire. Let's keep reading. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince or leader of Russia, Meshach, and Tubal. So I'm speaking here of a Russian adversary. And who is their adversary? God himself. Because this leader, Gog, who's leading Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, is against Israel. God will indeed be against Gog himself. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, this leader named Gog, he is going to lead this coalition in this incredible event. Look at verse 4. Let's go there for a second. He's already said, preach against them. And now he's going to clarify how this battle is going to happen because of God's disposition against Gog because he hates Israel. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in splendor, a vast assembly, all of them with bucklers and shields wielding swords. Now notice how verse four begins. It says, I will turn you around. And the Hebrew word for I will turn you around is shuab. In fact, it is often used in reference to sin in the Old Testament when God speaks of repentance, of the Jewish people turning from their sins. In fact, even today, an observant Jew will describe someone who is non-observant, who didn't follow the kosher laws and so forth, who becomes observant, they will say they're doing subah. It's a form of this word. That is, they are repenting. Now, in this context, the repenting, the turning around is not religious in nature, but it is in terms of the direction of their coming from the north. Why? Because God's going to put a hook, and God's going to bring them down. Now, what will be the hook? The Scripture doesn't say. Now, I can speculate. If I were to guess, it might be. Well, we certainly know part of it is the wealth of Israel, but the specific hook might be the natural gas that they have. Of course, under our last president, since Israel now has the largest natural gas reserves in the world, bigger than America, under our last president, he said, you shouldn't be buying your natural gas from Russia. You need to buy it from Israel. And of course, it was half the price but they didn't choose to do that. And of course, this past week, two of those nations were dropped from Russia. They cut off their gas. And it may be that Russia will want to go after these natural gas supplies, but there will be some kind of hook, some kind of motivation that God will use. Now remember, we're going to see in a moment, Russia will make its own choice based on its own evil motives. But God is over it all. Why? Because as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he wishes. Just like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the scripture underscores in Exodus, was made to follow Israel, to go after them. 
Why? Because God was going to bring judgment on that Pharaoh and all his army and have them literally drowned in the Red Sea. So on the one hand, this is a willful decision that Gog is going to make, that we're going to see their motivation in verses 12 and 13. But on the other hand, God is over it all. God is in charge. Let's read verse 4 again. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army horses and horsemen. And all of them clothed in splendor, a vast assembly, all of them with bucklers and shields, wielding swords. Now notice the description of this invading army. They'll have horses and horsemen. They'll have bucklers and shields, wielding swords. And so it's often asked, should this be understood literally of this army? Or should this be understood figuratively of this army? And technically, I suppose the text could allow for a figurative interpretation and that, at least for part of it, he separates all your army from the cavalry. And in Ezekiel's day, the cavalry would be considered the strong part of any military force. However, I think it's probably best to take it literally. You say they're going to come with swords and shields and horses? Yeah, Why would you take it literally? Well, first of all, as a general principle in Scripture, especially as it refers to prophecy, you should only take it symbolically if when you read it, its meaning is absolutely absurd. But if taken literally and it's clarified, then you should take it literally. Now, what do we know is going to happen during this time frame? Well, both Jesus and the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation, if you were here for in our series, describes these incredible events that are happening in the heavens above. It may be via solar flare or whatever that all the electronic equipment in the world will literally be shut down. Now, we won't know for sure, for sure until, of course, it happens. But there are many figures of speech, and again, when something is a figure of speech, you should take it, because if to read it literally and it's absurd, then you shouldn't interpret it that way. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, or I am the door, he didn't mean he was a loaf of bread, or he was a physical door. And so when there are typically similes involved, God will use words like this or as this, but he doesn't use that kind of language. Well, some would say, well, he's using Ezekiel's language because how could he describe missiles and tanks and assault rifles and MiG-29s and the like? Well, let me just say here while we're here, God doesn't need anyone's help. And if God literally fulfills this, it will be all the more great that he saw down into the future exactly what was going to happen and the consequences. In either case, what is clear and no one can debate, is that great Russian bear is going to have a face-off with the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I can tell you who's going to win. All right, let's read verse 5. Verses 5 and 6 complete the allies that will attack Israel with their leader Gog, Persia, Cush, and Put with them, all of them with buckler and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togama from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, Many peoples with you. Now, we know who Persia is. We know it's modern-day Iran. In fact, it was called Persia until March of 1935, where Persia was renamed Iran. And so, interestingly, Iran was once one of Israel's greatest allies. When preachers 
preached in Israel in the 1970s. And they said, well, Iran, I know, is your friend, but someday they're going to be your enemy. People said, not Iran. They're like, we're buds, man. We work together. They're, they're helping us. And then it happens. Now, if you ask any Israeli, who is your number one worst enemy? They'll say the Iranians. And then they wanted to say, well, what else does this Bible say? And they started asking Christian preachers who were coming to Israel. So here's the map so far. We have Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And if you know your history at all, here are three nations who once hated each other, but now they cooperate with each other and someday together will attack Israel. Now next here in verse five, we have Cush. Now Cush appears three times in the the table of nations for Ham's descendants. We know Cush is a transliteration of the Hebrew, which encompasses both Ethiopia and Sudan. If you're using the 1901 American Standard Version or the 2020 New American Standard Version, it simply renders it differently. And I I like Cush because technically he's describing from the table of nations what we would call Ethiopian people. And Ethiopian people not only live in the boundaries of Ethiopia, but they also live in Sudan. And so one translation of the NAS said, well, we're just going to call them Ethiopians because that's who they are. And then in the new translation of the NAS, they went back to Cush, like the 1901 translation of the American Standard Version that became the new American Standard in the 1950s because it is in reference to Ethiopians wherever they may be. So again, he continues in verse 5. It ends with the words, uh, excuse me, put. We definitely know who put is. No one debates that. That's modern-day Libya. And again, they're one of uh, Russia's strongest allies uh, in the Arab world. Verse 5 speaks of all of them with buckler and helmet. Again, underscoring that these are well-outfitted armies. Included in the war notice is Gomer. And Josephus identifies the people of Gomer, the Gomerites, as those living in Galatia, which is the western part of Turkey. Again, remember, when we think of countries, we think of geographical boundaries. When God thinks of the nations of the world, he thinks of ethnicities. And so in modern-day Turkey, you have the Gomorites as well. And then he mentions here Beth Togarma. Beth Togarma, it's a mouthful. And that would be in the north of modern Turkey. So here's a map where we've been so far. Look at the map. You've got the former Soviet Union, largely Russia and all the stand nations. You have Iran, you have Turkey, you have Libya, and you have this region that would encompass both Sudan and Ethiopia. And these are the nations that are going to go under the leadership of Gog, this Russian leader, whoever he is. These are the nations that are going to attack Israel. Now, between the table of nations ancient literature, the Septuagint, it's easy to identify these nations. There's not any debate on it. And I could have spent an hour just on that, but I don't want to bore you. Look at verse 7. It's like God taunts these nations. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. In other words, God is telling Gog and his allies that they had better make preparations because when they attack Israel, they're attacking God Almighty. 
Join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Russia's Rise in Prophecy. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS-002. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to search the scriptures. Give us a call at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.